All right, welcome to our study of the book of Hebrews here on the Listener's Commentary. In our last recording, we looked at the backstory to this book. And even though there's a lot of questions about some of the specific details regarding that backstory, the purpose of the letter is clear, and that purpose is really important to understand as we enter into the study. So if you haven't listened to the backstory recording, you might want to go back and check that out so you at least know what situation this letter is addressing, that it's addressing Jewish Christians who are being tempted to leave Jesus and revert to Judaism. And so here in chapter 1, 1 through 4, as we launch into uh, the book of Hebrews, there's no formal intro like in your typical New Testament letter. We don't have an introduction and greetings from so-and-so to so-and-so greetings. We have none of that. Hebrews simply opens by introducing its central figure, specifically Jesus, God's son. And it launches into this quick little paragraph that is just jam-packed with a load of theology about who Jesus is and it's the setup then for everything else the author of Hebrews wants to mention about Jesus's greatness and superiority over everything entailed in the Old Covenant. It's the fact that there is no formal introduction and greeting that has led to so much mystery around the backstory to the letter. But the reason for that, as we noted in our last recording, is because this is more like a sermon than a letter. It has some letter elements, particularly at the end when there's some greetings at the end, but really it's organized like a sermon, and that's really what the author calls it when he says it's a word of exhortation. So here, in these verses, he just jumps in and he introduces really his main theme, or at least his main subject, Jesus, God's Son. And the basic point of verses 1 through 4 is that God has now spoken. In the present time, God has now spoken in and through his Son, who is superior to the angels. And then the focus on angels will continue in the paragraph that follows. And so the major focus here is on the comparison between the old order, in which God spoke in the prophets, and in the new order, in which God has now spoken, in and through and by his son. And by virtue of who the son is, that he mentions in verse 3, God's revelation in the son surpasses the revelation of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. That's really at the heart of this paragraph. Here's the way this paragraph is organized. Verses 1 and 2 contrast God's revelation in the past with the revelation through the son. And then verses 3 and 4 describe the majesty of the Son through whom now God has revealed himself. So, here's how the book of Hebrews begins. Verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. That's verses 1 through 2a, and the fundamental affirmation of this section, this sentence, is that God spoke. But there are two clear periods of God speaking, of revelation. God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and God has spoken in these last days in his Son. Those are the two periods. But the fundamental affirmation, which is central to our 
uh, worldview and our belief as followers of Jesus is that God is someone who has spoken, and that's how we know his will and know who he is. So God spoke. Now, in the past, long ago, back in the old days, right, God spoke to the fathers in the prophets. When he says long ago to the fathers and the prophets, he's talking about the age of promise, the old covenant era, the old order. And in that period, he spoke, notice, to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. The fathers are the Jewish ancestors. The prophets are God's spokesmen. In fact, we tend to have a fairly narrow view of prophets, and we think of just the books in the Old Testament called the books of the prophets, right? Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and the minor prophets. Those are the prophets to us. But even the ordering of the Hebrew scriptures in the Hebrew Bible is different. Uh, Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, uh, law or instruction, prophets, and writings. That's, so that middle section, the in in Tanakh, means prophets. And it includes uh, Joshua and Kings and some of these other books. And so, so the prophets were those who spoke on God's behalf. So that's what he means here is God spoke to the fathers through his spokesman, through the prophets. And that's how he spoke in the past. And notice when he did that, he spoke in, it says, many portions and in many ways, or in many parts and pieces is the idea. Like, in fact, it's alliterated in, in the original Greek. So parts and pieces captures that same force of it. He spoke in bits and pieces. In, uh, the New English Bible puts it in fragmentary and buried fashion. That's the idea that he spoke in parts and pieces in the old era. But in these last days, he's spoken by his, his son. Now, notice uh, that these last days starts with these. In other words, Long ago was then in the past, but now, at the present, it's the last days. Uh, the author of Hebrews, the original audience of Hebrews, uh, he's speaking in, he's living in the last days. These last days are 2,000 years long at this point. But what do they mean by that? Well, this is consistent in the New Testament. In fact, you can see this right at the beginning, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, when the Apostle Peter quotes the prophet Joel on the day of Pentecost, and he quotes a passage from Joel that begins with this same Old Testament phrase of the latter days, the latter time, right? These last days, and says in Acts 2 that it's beginning then, right? And so the last days doesn't refer to the final weeks or months before Jesus returns. The last days in the New Testament refers to the final stage that we've entered into. And so the age of promise is the old era, the old covenant, the days before the Messiah. That's the age of promise. But now that Messiah has come and the Spirit has been poured out, we're living in the last days. That is the new order of things, the age of fulfillment. And so you have those two eras, age of promise and age of fulfillment. And these last days, that phrase captures that idea of we're living in the messianic era, the messianic age, the age of fulfillment. And this, in fact, is one of the central contrasts that the book of Hebrews makes between the old era, the age of promise, versus the new era, the messianic age, the age of fulfillment. And if you're going to leave the Messiah, Jesus, and 
go to revert to Judaism, you're trying to turn back the clock. You're trying to go back to the old era, the age of promise, and that era's day is over. We've moved into a new era, the age of fulfillment. And so we have to keep that contrast in mind to understand what the book of Hebrews is all about. So God spoke. He spoke in the, the age of promise, the old era, to the Jewish ancestors and the prophets. And he did that in many bits and pieces, parts and ways, right? And But in these last days, this last stage, the, the age of fulfillment, he has spoken to us in his son is how it's translated, but literally it's just in a son, not through the prophets, but in his son. There's no his, his literally, they've supplied that to, for clarity, but it's literally just in a son. And the word son stands in contrast to prophets. And so he spoke through servants and prophets in the past, but in these last days, he spoke through his very own son. In fact, the author of Hebrews later in chapter 3 will even point out that Jesus is superior to the greatest of the prophets, Moses himself. You can see that in uh, chapter 3, 1 through 6. So that's how God has spoken now. He's spoken in and through his son. His son is the culmination of and the final revelation of the fullness of the revelation of God and God's will. And so that's who Jesus is. Then the author here in these verses uh, provides eight affirmations about Jesus, about Christ. So this is what he says. He says, whom he, God, appointed heir of all things. That's the first affirmation, that Jesus is the heir, his son is the heir of all things. That likely alludes to Psalm 2, because he's going to quote that very shortly in verse 5 where the anointed one is deemed God's son, appointed as God's son, and he's the heir of the nations. And so that's probably, in view of the fact that we know he has Psalm 2 on his mind, probably what this alludes to, that the son is the heir of God's universal kingdom, of everything on earth. Um, he is going to inherit all of that and be the ruler over all of that. That's the idea. So whom he appointed heir of all things. In fact, this idea of heir, inheritance, and uh, inheriting something is central to Hebrews. It shows up over and over again throughout the book in various places where Jesus is spoken of in this regard and where even those that are with him are spoken of as then heirs of what he has to give. And so this is an, a central theme to the letter that's noted here right at the outset. So first affirmation, Jesus is the heir of all things. Now, as we continue reading, we get the second affirmation. So, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And so, notice that God created the world, but he did so in concert with or through the Son, through whom he also made the world. Again, this is a consistent New Testament theme. You see it right there in the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1, 3, where it's through Jesus, through the word, that all things were made. And so uh, through him, through the Son, God has made the world. And the word world here is literally ages, uh, made the ages, but it also has sort of a physical spatial sense, not just a time sense. Some actually translate it universe here, through whom he made all the things of the ages, all the stuff of the universe. That's the idea. And so Jesus is the heir of all things. And 
Part of that is because he's also the creator of all things in partnership with God, his father. Continuing the thought then in verse three, and he, the son, is the radiance of his God. We've got to get these pronouns right. So he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And so there you get affirmations three and four. So keeping our list of eight affirmations about the son, he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature. Um, What does it mean that he's the radiance of God's glory? Well, the idea of this word radiance, in fact, that word's only used here in the New Testament. It's not even used elsewhere in the Greek Old Testament. So it's a fairly rare word, but the word can mean to the shining of something, right? Like something radiates, it shines, or the reflection of something else that shines. And so either the sun himself radiates God's glory or he reflects God's glory. In short, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference theologically, but probably it's more the idea here in the active sense that Jesus is actually the shining forth of the very glory of God. Uh, In other words, under the in the Old Testament, they spoke of right the glory of God that filled the tabernacle, right? The Shekinah glory of God came to rest on the tabernacle. Well, now that very Shekinah glory, that shining forth, that radiance of the very glory of God fills Jesus and it shines forth from Jesus. This is really what Jesus is getting at when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that he is the very embodiment of, the shining forth of, the very glory of God himself. So he is the radiance of God's glory. And then fourth, he's the exact representation of his nature. Uh, That phrase, exact representation, actually translates the Greek word character, uh, which uh, had a variety of uses, but the primary way it was used was for like a mark or an impression placed on an object, oftentimes on coins. So like on a coin, you would have the character, the image, the impression of the emperor, right? Um, and so that's the idea here is like uh, a stamp on, on in a wax or uh, the impression on a coin. That's what we're talking about. And so Jesus is the very expression of, the very imprint of God's nature, um, the the essential nature of God. That's the idea of this word nature. It refers to the thing that makes the thing what it is, the essence of the thing. And so he doesn't just look like God. He is the very embodiment of the very nature of God himself. He bears the stamp of God's nature. In other words, what God is, the Son is. And so he's the exact representation of his nature. The, the sentence continues then that, uh, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so um, the Son is the one that is carrying, that's the idea of upholding here, it's bearing or carrying. He's the one that's carrying the universe by his powerful word. He is, um, in fact, F.F. Bruce contends that it's more not just carrying it in a general sense, like he's holding it up like Atlas, you know, holding the earth on his back, but he's actually carrying the the world forward towards its appointed purpose towards its appointed goal. So he's upholding it all, holding it together, uniting it all, holding it together, but he's doing so as he's moving it forward, carrying it towards uh, its appointed course on its appointed way. And so it's the idea of Jesus being the sustainer and the one who's 
really the at the head of the universe's purpose, leading it towards its goal and where it's heading. And so he brought the universe into existence. He sustains and carries the universe forward. That's who the Son is. And as the sentence continues, it notes then that when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so there we see that another affirmation is that the Son made purification for sins. Uh, obviously, deriving from the, the rituals of the Old Covenant that provided cleansing both from ritual uncleanness and from moral uncleanness, from sin itself. And here the Son is the one that made final, complete purification. Uh, the cleansing of the Old Covenant was incomplete and temporary. That's the argument that the author of Hebrews will make in chapters 8 through 10. But the cleansing from sin, the purification from sin that the Son makes is final and permanent and complete. And so he completed that. And in fact, that completeness of the purification from sins that he made is actually uh, alluded to, hinted at, in the next phrase. When he made purification of sins, he sat down. He sat down because his work was done. It was complete. It was finished. Um, in fact, the author of Hebrews will emphasize this later in chapters 9 and 10 when he talks about the priests stand every day. They stand offering sacrifices. That stands in contrast to Jesus, the son who he offered his offering and he sat down because his offering was so sufficient, so complete, and so permanent. His work here was done. And so he sat down. His purification was so complete. And where did he sit? Well, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, a way to refer to God. He sat down at God's right hand. He's God's right hand man, if you will. And that's where he sat down. So enthroned in the heaven on the very throne of God with the God of majesty on high, there sits the son, having made complete and final and perfect purification for sins. And then uh, the author says, having become so much better than the angels to the extent that he inherited a more excellent name than they did. And so he made purifications for sin. He sat down at the right hand of God on high. And then the eighth affirmation is he has a much better name than angels. He's superior to the angels. In fact, his exaltation and uh, being seated on the throne of God at his right hand, that demonstrates his superiority to the angels. That's sort of the flow of the logic here. And in fact, within Judaism, um, at least certain segments of it, they had a, a fairly developed angelology, and certain principal angels were understood to be in such positions of power and honor and authority that they were only surpassed by God. Well, here's the son sitting on the throne with God, and thus being exalted above all the angelic powers. Now, how does this mention of angels fit into the passage here? Why does he even bring that up? Well, uh, it's still somewhat related to the theme of Revelation that we see in this passage. When you look down in chapter 2, verse 2, in fact, the rest of chapter 1 is going to develop this theme of having a better name than the angels. We'll see that in our next recording. But when he ends that, better name than the angels, and he jumps into his first exhortation in chapter 2, what he says is that, that the law came 
with glory through the angels. The angels somehow were involved in the giving of the law. And that's why the angels are brought up here. Uh, they're brought up because the son's superiority to the angels has to do with the son's superiority of his revelation. And so he was given a more excellent name than the angels. And what we'll see in the following paragraph is that more excellent name is son compared to their name being servant and messenger. And so they're servants of God. They're messengers of God. And yes, they have dignity and high status, but not nearly as high status as the son. That's the more excellent name that he received than them. And one other important note before we wrap up this section, and that's the phrase more excellent. We actually see this a word used 13 times in Hebrews. It's the idea of better or superior, depending on your translation. Um, but it's used 13 times in Hebrews specifically to contrast Jesus, the son, and the age that, of fulfillment that he has brought with the old covenant and the old order of promise. And so he is better and the author of Hebrews is going to emphasize that over and over again by using this word. It's translated more excellent here, and it's used 13 times in this book to emphasize the superiority of the Son. All right, there you have it. That's how the book of Hebrews opens with this glorious grand introduction to its central character, Jesus, the Son himself. And he's going to show how the Son is superior to everything involved with the Old Covenant, and thus we need to remain faithful to him. If he is the culmination of all of God's promises, and if he is superior to everything did long, he did long ago, if he is that superior, then he deserves our utmost and highest allegiance. Thanks for listening to this recording of the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary on the New Testament is a listener-supported Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. So thanks a ton to those of you who support this ministry and make it possible. The impact that the Listener's Commentary is having on thousands of lives around the world is a result of your faithful support and generosity. So thanks a ton. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by clicking the link down in the notes below or going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button and setting up a monthly recurring donation there. Or if you want to just give a one-time donation, you can do so at that link as well.